Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Globe Gazette for February 21, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. The headline on the front page today reads, U.S. Vetoes Gaza Ceasefire Motion. Other Security Council members support Arab-backed resolution. The United States vetoed an Arab-backed UN resolution Tuesday demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war in the embattled Gaza Strip, saying it would interfere with negotiations on a deal to free hostages abducted in Israel. The vote in the 15-member Security Council was 13 to 1, with the United Kingdom abstaining, reflecting the strong support from countries around the globe for ending the war, which started when Hamas militants invaded southern Israel on October 7. Since then, more than 29,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's military offensive, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, which says the vast majority were women and children. It was the third U.S. veto of a Security Council resolution demanding a ceasefire in Gaza and came a day after the United States circulated a rival resolution that would support a temporary ceasefire linked to the release of all hostages. Virtually every council member, including the United States, expressed concern at the impending catastrophe in Gaza, Gaza's southern city of Rafah, where some 1.5 million Palestinians have sought refuge, if Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu goes ahead with his plan to evacuate civilians and move Israel's military offensive to the area bordering Egypt where Israel says Hamas fighters are hiding. Before the vote, Algeria's UN ambassador, Amar Benjama, the Arab representative on the council, said, a vote in favor of this draft resolution is a support to the Palestinians' right to life. Conversely, voting against it implies an endorsement of the brutal violence and collective punishment inflicted against them. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thompson-Greenfield said the United States understands the desire for urgent action, but believes the resolution would negatively impact negotiations on a hostage deal and a pause in fighting for at least six weeks. If that happens, we can take the time to build a more enduring peace, she said. The proposed U.S. resolution, she said, would do what this text does not, pressure Hamas to take the hostage deal that is on the table and help secure a pause that allows humanitarian assistance to reach Palestinian civilians in desperate need. The World Food Program said Tuesday it paused deliveries of food to isolated northern Gaza because of increasing chaos across the territory hiking fears of potential starvation. A study by the UN Children's Agency warned that one in six children in the North are acutely malnourished. Entry of aid trucks into the besieged territory declined by more than half the past two weeks, according to UN figures. 
Overwhelmed UN and relief workers said intake of trucks and distribution are crippled by Israeli failure to ensure convoy safety amid its bombardment and ground offensive and by a breakdown in security with hungry Palestinians frequently overwhelming trucks to take food. The weakening of the aid operation threatens to deepen misery across the territory, where Israel's air and ground offensive has killed more than 29,000 Palestinians, obliterated entire neighborhoods, and displaced more than 80% of the population of 2.3 million. The north, including Gaza City, has been isolated since Israel troops first moved into it in October. Large swaths of the city have been reduced to rubble, but several hundred thousand Palestinians remain largely cut off from aid. They describe famine-like conditions in which families limit themselves to one meal a day and often resort to mixing animal and bird fodder with grains to bake bread. The situation is beyond your imagination, said Suad Abu Hussein, a widow and mother of five children sheltering in a school in Jabalaya refugee camp. Israel's UN ambassador, Gilad Erdan, said the word ceasefire is used in the Security Council, the General Assembly, and by UN officials as if it is a silver bullet, a magical solution to all of the region's problems. He called that an absurd notion, warning that a ceasefire in Gaza would enable Hamas to rearm and regroup, and their next attempted genocide against Israelis will only be a question of when, not if. Riyad Mansour, the Palestinian UN ambassador, shot back that the message given today to Israel with this veto is that it continue to get away with murder. He warned that more babies will be killed and orphaned, more children will die of hunger, cold and disease, more families will be threatened with further forced displacement, and Gaza's entire population will be left without food, water, medicine, and shelter. In a sharply critical message to the United States, Israel's closest ally, Mansour said it means that human lives that could have been saved are instead being forsaken to Israel's genocide war machine, deliberately, knowingly, by those who oppose a ceasefire. The Arab group could take its resolution to the UN General Assembly, which includes all 193 member nations, where it is virtually certain to be approved. But unlike Security Council resolutions, Assembly resolutions are not legally binding. The Arab-backed resolution would have demanded an immediate humanitarian ceasefire to be respected by all parties, which implies an end to the war. By contrast, the U.S. draft resolution would support a temporary ceasefire as soon as practicable, based on the formula of all hostages being released, and call for lifting all barriers to the provision of humanitarian assistance at scale. Also on the front page, an article entitled Western Support for Ukraine Withers as Putin Bides Time, but conflict taking toll 
as Russia maintains pressure on a largely static front line. When the invasion of Ukraine began in February 2022, some analysts predicted it might take as few as three days for Russian forces to capture the capital of Kyiv. With the war now entering its third year, Russian President Vladimir Putin seems to be trying to turn that initial failure to his advantage by biding his time and waiting for Western support for Ukraine to wither while Moscow maintains its steady military pressure along the front line. Putin's longer timeline still has its downside, with the conflict taking a heavy toll on Russia by draining its economic and military resources and fueling social tensions, even as the death of imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny serves as a chilling reminder of the Kremlin's ruthless crackdown on dissent. Putin has repeatedly signaled a desire to negotiate an end to the fighting, but warned that Russia will hold on to its gains. This month, he used an interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson to urge the United States to push its satellite, Ukraine, into peace talks, saying sooner or later we will come to an agreement. Some recent developments have fed the Kremlin's optimism. Aid for Ukraine remains stuck in the U.S. Congress, while NATO allies struggle to fill the gap following Ukraine's underperforming counteroffensive last summer. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's decision to dismiss his popular military chief, General Valery Zaluznyi, disappointed many in the country and worried its Western allies. Donald Trump, who repeatedly claimed he would negotiate a quick deal to end the war if elected, recently spooked NATO by saying he would allow Russia to expand its aggression in Europe if alliance members fail to increase their defense spending. Tatiana Stenovaya of the Carnegie Russian Eurasia Center said a possible Trump return to the White House would serve Putin's goals. He sees Trump as a figure likely to wreak destruction and believes the consequences of a second Trump presidency would be to weaken the West and deprive Ukraine of the support it needs, Stanovoya said. As the Kremlin watches for more signs of crumbling Western support for Ukraine, Russian forces captured the eastern stronghold of Avdivavka over the weekend after a fierce battle in which Ukrainian forces reported an increasingly desperate shortage of munitions. The seizure set the stage for a potential Russian push deeper into Ukraine-held territory. While no large-scale offensive is currently taking place, Russian units are tasked with conducting smaller tactical attacks that at minimum inflict steady losses on Ukraine and allow Russian forces to seize and hold positions, said Jack Watling and Nick Reynolds of the Royal United Services Institute. In this way, the Russians are maintaining a consistent pressure on a number of points. Amid amid the fierce battles in the east, Russia has also sought to cripple Ukraine's defense industries with a steady series of strikes. 
It has used long-range crews and ballistic missiles, as well as Iranian-made Shahed drones, to saturate and overwhelm Ukrainian air defenses that are experiencing a growing shortage of munitions. In terms of Russian industry's capacity to support ongoing operations, Russia has significantly mobilized its defense industry. Increasing shifts and expanding production lines at existing facilities, as well as bringing previously mothballed plants back online. Watling and Reynolds said this has led to significant increases in production output. They also note that Russian arms industries continue to depend on Western supplied components, arguing that tighter enforcement of sanctions could disrupt this. Some Moscow analysts acknowledge, however, the Russian military faces challenges. Retired General Yuri Balyuevsky, the former chief of the military's general staff, admitted that Ukrainian air defenses effectively barred Russian warplanes from Ukrainian airspace and often make it risky for them to operate even over Russian-controlled territory. Balyuevsky said in a recent article that Western-supplied artillery are superior to Russian systems. Western officials and analysts note that while the 930-mile front line has remained largely static, with neither side making significant gains, Ukrainian forces launched bold missile and drone attacks deep behind the line of contact, raising the costs for the Kremlin and challenging Putin's attempts to pretend that life in Russia is largely unaffected by the war. Ukraine has launched attacks on oil terminals and refineries deep inside Russia, as well as its naval and air assets in the Black Sea region, in a painful blow to Moscow's military capability. That includes the sinking of two Russian amphibious assault ships and a missile boat, along with strikes on air bases in Crimea that knocked out radar facilities and destroyed warplanes. Last month, Ukrainian troops downed a Russian early warning and control aircraft over the Sea of Azov and badly damaged a flying command post, some of Moscow's most precious intelligence assets. On page two, we find an article entitled States Look to Protect Health-Related Data. Report shows phone locations used to send users anti-abortion ads. Some state governments and federal regulators were already moving to keep individuals' reproductive health information private when a U.S. senator's recent report offered a new jolt describing how cell phone location data was used to send millions of anti-abortion ads to people who visited Planned Parenthood offices. Federal law bars medical providers from sharing health data without a patient's consent, but doesn't prevent digital tech companies from tracking menstrual cycles or an individual's location and selling it to data brokers. Legislation for federal bans have never gained momentum, largely because of opposition from the tech industry. Whether that should change has become another political fault line in a nation where most Republican-controlled states have restricted abortion, 
including 14 with bans in place at every stage of pregnancy. And most Democratic ones have sought to protect access since the Supreme Court in 2022 overwhelmed, overturned Roe v. Wade. Abortion rights advocates fear that if such data is not kept private, it could be used not only in targeted ads, but also in law enforcement investigations or by abortion opponents looking to harm those who seek to end pregnancies. It isn't just sort of creepy, said Washington State Representative Vandana Slatter, the sponsor of a law her state adopted last year to rein in unauthorized use of health information. It's actually harmful. But so far, there's no evidence of widespread use of this kind of data in law enforcement investigations. We're generally talking about a future risk, not something that's happening on the ground yet, said Albert Fox Kahn, executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project and an advocate of protection. The report last week from Senator Ron Wyden, an Oregon Democrat, showed the biggest known anti-abortion ad campaign directed to people who had been identified as having visited abortion providers. Wyden's investigation found that the information gathered by a now-defunct data broker called Near Intelligence was used by ads from the Veritas Society, a nonprofit founded by Wisconsin Right to Life. The ads targeted people who visited 600 locations in 48 states from 2019 through 2022. There were more than 14 million ads in Wisconsin alone. Wyden called on the Federal Trade Commission to intervene in the bankruptcy case for NEAR to make sure the location information collected on Americans was destroyed and not sold to another data broker. He also asked the Securities Exchange Commission to investigate whether the company committed securities fraud by misleading statements to investors about the senator's investigation. It's not the first time the issue has come up. Massachusetts reached a settlement in 2017 with an ad agency that ran a similar campaign nearly a decade ago. The FTC sued one data broker, Cochava, over similar claims in 2022 in an ongoing case and settled last month with another, Xmode Social, and its successor, OutLogic, which the government said sold location data of even users who opted out of such information sharing. Xmode was also found to have sold location data to the U.S. military. In both cases, the FTC relied on a law against unfair or deceptive practices. States are also passing or considering their own laws aimed specifically at protecting sensitive health information. Connecticut and Nevada adopted similar laws last year. New York enacted one that bars using tracking around health care facilities. California and Maryland took another approach, enacting laws that prevent computerized health networks from sharing information about sensitive health care with other providers without consent. 
Illinois, which already had a law limiting how health tracking data, measuring heart rates, steps, and others, can be shared, adopted a new one last year that took effect January 1, and that bans providing government license plate reading data to law enforcement in states with abortion laws, abortion bans. Bills addressing the issue in some form have been introduced in several states this year, including Hawaii, Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Missouri, South Carolina, and Vermont. On page three, we find national and world news. The first article entitled U.S. to Impose Sanctions. Opposition leader's mother asks Putin to turn over son's body. The White House said Tuesday it is preparing additional major sanctions on Russia in response to opposition leader Alexei Navalny's death last week in an Arctic penal colony. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the sanctions on the eve of the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine will be a substantial package covering a range of different elements of the Russian defense industrial base and sources of revenue for the Russian economy that power Russia's war machine, that power Russia's aggression, and that power Russia's repression. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the U.S. has not determined how Navalny died, but insisted that the ultimate responsibility lay with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Regardless of the scientific answer, Putin's responsible for it, he told reporters. Russian authorities say the cause of Navalny's death is still unknown and refuse to release his body for the next two weeks as the preliminary inquest continues, members of his team said. Navalny's mother appealed Tuesday directly to Putin to intervene and turn her son's body over to her so she can bury him with dignity. Leodmila Navalnyana, who has been trying to get his body since Saturday, appeared in a video outside the Arctic penal colony where Navalny died on Friday. For the fifth day, I have been unable to see him. They wouldn't release his body to me, and they're not even telling me where he is, a black-clad Navalnyaya said in the video, showing the barbed wire of the penal colony number three in Kark, 1,200 miles northeast of Moscow. I'm reaching out to you, Vladimir Putin. The resolution of this matter depends solely on you. Let me finally see my son. I demand that Alexei's body is released immediately so that I can bury him like a human being, she said in the video, which was posted to social media by Navalny's team. They accused the government of stalling to try to hide evidence. On Monday, Navalny's widow, Yulia, released a video accusing Putin of killing her husband and alleged the refusal to release his body was part of a cover-up. They are cowardly and meanly hiding his body, refusing to give it to his mother and lying miserably, she said. The Treasury Department declined to comment on the details of the upcoming sanctions. Brian Nelson, the department's undersecretary for terrorism and financial intelligence, is in Europe this week to continue working on Russian sanctions ahead of the invasion's two-year anniversary. 
Next, we find an article entitled, Assange Tries to Avoid Extradition. U.S. authorities want WikiLeaks founder to face trial for spying. Julian Assange's lawyers opened a final U.K. legal challenge on Tuesday to stop the WikiLeaks founder from being sent to the United States to face spying charges, arguing that American authorities seek to punish him for exposing serious criminal acts by the U.S. government. Lawyer Edward Fitzgerald said Assange may suffer a flagrant denial of justice if he is sent to the U.S. At a two-day high court hearing, Assange's attorneys asked judges to grant a new appeal, his last legal roll of the dice in Britain. Assange was not in court. Judge Victoria Sharp said he was granted permission to come from Belmarsh Prison for the hearing, but chose not to attend. Fitzgerald said the 15-year-old Australian was unwell. Stella Assange, his wife, said Julian wanted to attend, but his health was not in good condition. He was sick over Christmas. He's had a cough since then, she told the Associated Press. She said the WikiLeaks founder is following proceedings through his lawyers. Assange's family and supporters say his physical and mental health have suffered during more than a decade of legal battles, including seven years in self-exile in the Ecuadorian embassy in London and the last five years in the high-security prison on the outskirts of the British capital. He was indicted on 17 charges of espionage and one charge of computer misuse over his website's publication of classified U.S. documents almost 15 years ago. American prosecutors say Assange helped U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning steal diplomatic cables and military files that WikiLeaks later published. To his supporters, Assange is a secrecy-busting journalist who exposed U.S. military wrongdoing in Iraq and Afghanistan. They argue that the prosecution is politically motivated and he won't get a fair trial in the U.S. If the judges rule against Assange, he can ask the European Court of Human Rights to block his extradition, though supporters worry he could be put on a plane to the U.S. before that happens, because the British government already signed an extradition order. Assange's lawyers say he could face up to 175 years in prison if convicted, though American authorities have said the sentence is likely to be much shorter. And now an article from Kansas City entitled Two Adults Arrested in Kansas City Shooting. Police say both hit during shootout after Super Bowl parade. Two men charged with murder in last week's shooting after the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade were strangers who pulled out guns and began firing within seconds of starting an argument, according to court documents released on Tuesday. Missouri prosecutors said at a news conference that Lindell Mays of Raytown, Missouri and Dominique Miller of Kansas City, Missouri have been charged with second-degree murder and several weapons counts in the shooting that left one person dead and about two dozen others injured. Both men were shot during the melee, according to 
probable cause affidavits. Both have been hospitalized since, Prosecutor Jean Peters Baker said. The argument began when two groups of people grew agitated over the belief that people in the other group were staring at them, according to affidavits. The video showed Mays was the first to begin shooting, despite being surrounded by crowds of people, including children, according to one of the affidavits. A bullet from Miller's gun killed Lisa Lopez Galvan, who was in a nearby crowd watching the rally, officials said on Tuesday. And that does it for today's reading of the February 21, 2024 Globe Gazette. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening. And now we turn to the reading of the Messenger, for February 21, 2024, I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page, the lead article entitled From Teacher to CEO, Hildreth values his FFA roots in Calhoun County. When Keaton Hildreth started his career path, he knew two things for sure. He wanted to be an ag teacher, FFA advisor, and he wanted to stay in Iowa. But as life unfolded, a desire to be closer to his family's farm drew him back to Calhoun County, where his FFA journey started. It was a natural progression to be an FFA, said Hildreth, 35, CEO of the Calhoun County Electric Cooperative Association, ECA. I'd shown livestock when I was a member of the Union Leaders 4-H Club and there was never any question that I'd join FFA when I was in high school. Hildreth earned the FFA Star Green Hand Award his freshman year. He participated in conduct of meetings competitions as well as parliamentary procedure contests. Hands-on lessons in production agriculture also appealed to him. He took advantage of unique opportunities available at Southern Cal High School, now South Central Calhoun, thanks to the FFA chapter's farm southeast of Lake City. Hildreth and his fellow FFA members raised seed popcorn and earned a premium for their efforts. That was my first experience with something other than traditional corn and soybean production, said Hildreth who became the chapter farm manager, as well as the chapter vice president his senior year. In addition, FFA connected Hildreth and his classmates with the community around them through service projects like Project PALS, where FFA members teamed up with local second grade students. The high schoolers would meet with the grade school kids periodically to create ag-related crafts plant a flower for Mother's Day, enjoy a picnic in the park, and help the kids learn more about agriculture. Project Pals was a good way to teach younger kids about the importance of agriculture, regardless of whether they grew up on the farm or in town, Hildra said. This experience also planted a seed that would take root when Hildreth was in college. While he majored in ag studies at Iowa State University, he became more interested in ag education the more he talked with some of his buddies at ISU. Matt Carlson, my high school ag ed teacher, 
and FFA advisor, was also extremely supportive of my decision to focus on ag education, Hildreth said. After switching majors, Hildreth returned to his FFA roots when he spent one Christmas job shadowing at the high school in Lake City. He later student taught at East Sac High School. I was blessed to work with Scott Johnson, who was an East Sac ag teacher and FFA advisor at the time, said Hildreth, adding that Johnson went on to become the executive director of the FFA Enrichment Center in Ankeny. He was an awesome mentor who taught me how to stay organized, prepare kids for FFA contests, and so much more. Former student appreciates Hildreth's leadership. By the time Hildreth graduated from ISU in 2011, he'd had a biology endorsement and a job lined up at Spencer High School. Since an ag teacher's job is a 12-month commitment, he began working with local ag students that summer before the fall semester began. From the start, I tried to create an atmosphere of mutual respect and hands-on, activity-based experiential learning, Hildra said. That included a 12-acre test plot behind the middle school, as well as a 55-acre corn-soybean farm that the Spencer FFA rented from Dave Holtgren, who owned Holtgren Implement. I had a great support system through the Spencer community, Hildra said. The Spencer Chamber of Commerce has an ag committee, and they helped raise money so we could build a small greenhouse for the school's ag program. In addition, Hildreth's ag students operated the 55-acre farm using modern John Deere equipment from Holtgren Implement in Spencer. Students in Hildreth's agronomy classes ordered the seed and crop inputs while ag business students kept the financial records for the farm. I loved seeing how these experiences sparked more interest in ag from a wide range of kids, including ones who grew up in town, Hildra said. Some of my students, who didn't see themselves pursuing a career in ag, decided to study ag at Iowa Lakes Community College, ISU, and other schools. Patrick White was one of Hildra's ag students in Spencer. White founded AA Commodities and Investments in Spencer after earning his ag business degree from ISU and continues to play an active role in his family's grain farm. I liked having Keaton as an advisor because he gave us the opportunity to try new things and always went out of his way to make sure every kid succeeded, said White, who won the state FFA soil judging contest and competed at nationals during high school. He looked for any opportunity he could to help students broaden their horizons and learn about farming and future opportunities in agriculture. As a commodities broker and farmer, White uses the skills he learned in FFA to communicate more effectively with his clients and convey his ideas in a clear, concise way. FFA helps many people become more effective communicators, leaders, and professionals that this world desperately needs, said Hildreth. Like many successful professionals, Hildreth has prioritized continuing education and giving back. During the summer of 2013, he did both, 
and married his wife, Emily, in a whirlwind span of three weeks. He started off at the Curriculum for Agricultural Science Education Institute at the FFA Enrichment Center in Ankeny. Then he chaperoned one of his FFA students, along with other students from Sioux Central High School and Audubon High School, to Haiti for two weeks with Global Compassion Network. The volunteers built Iowa-made Sukup safety homes, durable metal houses designed to withstand hurricanes. The volunteers also helped paint an orphanage for girls in Haiti and built fencing to contain the orphanage's livestock. When you have the opportunity like this, say yes, Hildra said. Also, when you meet people who only make $1 a day, live in shacks with dirt floors, and cook over open fires, it gives you a whole new perspective on life. While Hildreth loved teaching in Spencer, he began looking for opportunities to work closer to his family farm near the Rockwell City, Lorville area, especially as he and Emily started a family. He left Spencer in 2014 when he became the manager of member services at the Calhoun County ECA. In 2018, Hildreth was promoted to CEO of the Calhoun County ECA. Today, he also serves as president of the Calhoun County Economic Development Corporation and as a member of the South Central Calhoun School Board. In addition, he serves as the school board's representative to the school's FFA chapter, Farm and Fruit Board. Hildreth still uses the skills he learned through FFA, from parliamentary procedure at board meetings to the organization's time management and communication skills he relied on as an FFA advisor and ag teacher. I try to give 100% to everything I do, he said. While I'm no longer teaching, I still have a goal to create more opportunities for the people I serve. And now also on the front page, an article entitled Nikki Haley hasn't yet won a GOP contest, but she's vowing to keep fighting Donald Trump. There are no wins on the horizon for Nikki Haley. Those close to the former United Nations ambassador, the last major Republican candidate standing in Donald Trump's path to the GOP's 2024 presidential nomination, are privately bracing for a blowout loss in her home state's primary election in South Carolina on Saturday. And they cannot name a state where she is likely to beat Trump in the coming weeks. But in an emotional address on Tuesday, Haley declared, I refuse to quit. And in an interview, she vowed to stay in the fight against Trump at least until after Super Tuesday's slate of more than a dozen contests on March 5, even if she suffers a big loss in her home state on Saturday. Ten days after South Carolina, another 20 states vote. I mean, this isn't Russia. We don't want someone to go in and just get 99% of the vote, Haley told the Associated Press. What's the rush? Why is everybody so panicked about me having to get out of this race? In fact, some Republicans are encouraging Haley to stay in the campaign, even if she continues to lose, potentially all the way to the Republican National Convention in July, in the event the 77-year-old former president 
perhaps the most volatile major party frontrunner in U.S. history, becomes a convicted felon or stumbles into another major scandal. As Trump's Make America Great Again movement presses for her exit, a defiant Haley on Tuesday repeatedly likened Trump to Democratic President Joe Biden and both as too old, too divisive, and too unpopular to be the only options for voters this fall. She also pushed back when asked if there is any primary state where she can defeat Trump. Instead of asking me what states I'm going to win, why don't you ask how he's going to win a general election after spending a full year in a courtroom? History would suggest Haley has no chance of stopping Trump. Never before has a Republican lost even the first two primary contests, as Haley has by an average of 21 points, and gone on to win the party's presidential nomination. Polls suggest she is a major underdog in her home state on Saturday and in the 16 Super Tuesday contest to follow. And since he announced his first presidential bid in 2015, every effort by a Republican to blunt Trump's rise has failed. Yet she is leaning into the fight. Lest anyone question her commitment, Haley's campaign is spending more than $500,000 on a new television advertising campaign set to begin running on Wednesday in Michigan, ahead of the state's February 27 primary, according to spokesperson Olivia Perez-Cubas. At the same time, the AP has obtained Haley's post-South Carolina travel schedule that features 11 separate stops in seven states across Michigan, Minnesota, Colorado, Utah, Virginia, Washington, D.C., North Carolina, and Massachusetts. The schedule also includes at least 10 high-dollar private fundraising events. Indeed, Haley's expansive base of big and small dollar donors is donating at an extraordinary pace despite her underwhelming performance at the polls. That's a reflection of persistent Republican fears about Donald Trump's ability to win over independents and moderate voters in the general election and serious concerns about his turbulent leadership should he return to the White House. I'm going to support her up to the convention, said Republican donor Eric Levine, who co-hosted a New York fundraiser for Haley earlier this month. We're not prepared to fold our tents and pray at the altar of Donald Trump. There's value in her sticking in and gathering delegates, because if and when he stumbles, Levine, Levine continued, who knows what happens? Levine is far from alone. Haley's campaign raised $5 million in a fundraising swing after her second-place finish in New Hampshire that included stops in Texas, Florida, New York, and California. Perez-Cubas said her campaign raised $16.5 million in January alone, her best fundraising month ever. The lone member of Congress who has endorsed Haley, Representative Ralph Norman, a Republican from South Carolina, Acknowledge that it may be difficult to win South Carolina, a state where she lives and served two terms as governor. Obviously, <clears throat> you want to win them all, but for those who say it's going to embarrass her or end her political career, I disagree. 
She's willing to take that risk, Norman said in an interview. I think it's a courageous thing she's doing. Moving forward, Haley's team is especially focused on several Super Tuesday states with open or semi-open Republican primaries that allow a broader collection of voters to participate, especially independents and moderates, instead of just hardcore conservatives. And finally on the front page, an article entitled Humboldt Gets EPA Money. Federal award helps with wastewater project. A $1.7 million award from the federal government has given the city of Humboldt the last piece of financing needed to fully fund some significant work at the wastewater treatment plant. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced the funding on Tuesday. The agency reported that $1 million of the amount is in the form of a forgivable loan. We have everything fully funded, City Administrator Cole Buckelman said. Contractors hired by the city are beginning to wind down a $4.42 million project focused on the main sanitary sewer lift station and the wastewater treatment plant. Buckelman said the project addresses flooding damage sustained several years ago. He said stormwater got into the sanitary sewers, overwhelming the main lift station and causing problems at the wastewater treatment plant. He said the repair project in late 20, began in late 2022. He said some of the work was done in the early morning hours to avoid shutdowns that would impact residents and businesses. There have been some significant delays caused by the supply chain issues affecting needed electronic components according to Bockelman. Peterson Construction of Webster City is the general contractor. The project is scheduled to be done in September. In addition to the EPA money, other sources of funding for the project include $2.1 million from a state low-interest loan, $1.5 million from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and $700,000 from the city's share of American Rescue Plan Act funds. On page two, an article entitled White House Promises Major Sanctions on Russia in Response to Alexei Navalny's Death. The White House said on Tuesday it is preparing additional major sanctions on Russia in response to opposition leader Alexei Navalny's death last week in an Arctic penal colony. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the sanctions on the eve of the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine will be a substantial package covering a range of different elements of the Russian defense industrial base and sources of revenue for the Russian economy that power Russia's war machine, that power Russia's aggression, and that power Russia's repression. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the U.S. had not determined how Navalny had died, but insisted that the ultimate responsibility lay with Putin. Regardless of the scientific answer, Putin's responsible for it, he told reporters. Russian authorities <clears throat> have said the cause of Navalny's death is still unknown and have refused to release his body for the next two weeks as the preliminary inquest continues, members of his team said. On page three, we find an article entitled 
Charges filed in 2023 fatal crash. Search warrant sought blood sample from driver in fatal crash. A Woolstock man who crashed his vehicle on the north side of Webster City last fall is being charged with causing his passenger's death. Dustin Humlicek, 40, was charged Thursday with homicide by vehicle operating while intoxicated and operating while under the influence, according to online court records. He was arrested by the Hamilton County Sheriff's deputies. Humlicek faces a possible sentence of up to 25 years in prison on the vehicular homicide charge. Kevin Baitol of Webster City was 48 when he died after being transported to a Des Moines hospital by air ambulance following the pickup crash at the intersection of North Des Moines Street in Webster City and 210th Street, which is locally known as the Annetta Woods Blacktop. The accident occurred on September 2, 2023. Beck Toll was a passenger in a 2009 Chevrolet Silverado being driven by Dustin Humlicek, who was then 39 and of Webster City, the sheriff's office reported. Humlicek called 911 to report the accident, the report stated. He told authorities he was driving the pickup northbound on Des Moines Street and didn't stop for the stop sign at 210th Street. The pickup went into the north ditch and ended up in a residential yard. Humilicek's 9-11 call was logged at 3.03 a.m. September 2, 2023. I was dispatched to a motor vehicle accident that occurred at 1751 210th Street, Webster City, Iowa. Deputy Zane Makita said in a criminal complaint filed in Hamilton County. I arrived and observed multiple officers and emergency services rendering aid to the victim. The driver was sitting just outside of the driver's door of the above vehicle. Webster City Officer Dan Watkins asked the defendant if he was driving, and in Officer Watkins' written statement, the defendant admitted to driving the vehicle. The defendant was loaded into an emergency vehicle and given aid. I went to the hospital where I waited for an EMS helicopter to arrive and take the defendant to Mercy One Hospital in Des Moines. While in the back of the emergency vehicle, I spoke to the defendant. I could smell the odor of an alcoholic beverage coming from his person, and the defendant's eyes were bloodshot and watery. I read the defendant the implied consent advisory due to the defendant being involved in a motor vehicle accident while showing signs of impairment. I gave the defendant until the helicopter arrived to decide to provide me with a blood or urine sample, but the defendant did not answer. This constituted a refusal for the withdrawal of a body specimen. It was reasonable to believe that due to the victim's extensive injuries, The victim likely sustained serious bodily injury or injuries resulting in death. Both men were transported to Des Moines. Bagtoll later died that day from his injuries. A search warrant served on Humlicek at Mercy One Hospital in Des Moines sought a blood sample. The passenger's injuries were due to the defendant's driving behavior that resulted from a single vehicle accident, the search warrant request stated.
observed multiple alcoholic beverages partially drank inside the vehicle. Lab tests ultimately showed the presence of alcohol and marijuana metabolites in Humlicek's blood. According to a report from the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation Laboratory in Ankeny, the accident was investigated by the Hamilton County Sheriff's Office, which said in a 2023 report that charges were pending. Homicide by vehicle operating while intoxicated is a Class B felony. Operating while under the influence, first offense, is a serious misdemeanor. Humlicek also was reportedly driving with a suspended license, which is a simple misdemeanor. A Class B felony is punishable by up to 25 years imprisonment. A serious misdemeanor is punishable by up to one year in prison and or a $2,560 fine and simple misdemeanor punishable by up to 30 days in prison and or a fine of $850. Assisting the Hamilton County Sheriff's Office in the investigation was the Webster City Police Department, Webster City Fire Department, Van Deest Medical Center Ambulance, Iowa State Patrol, and the Polk County Medical Examiner. And now a look at the Messenger Editorial. Basketball Project is Welcome Upgrade in H.C. Merriweather Park. The basketball courts at the H.C. Merriweather Park in Fort Dodge have long been some of the most popular ones in the city. The courts have been the site of neighborhood pickup games, contests held as part of the Juneteenth celebration that is now an annual tradition, and the old Pleasant Valley hoopla tournaments. But all that action, combined with Iowa's scorching summers and frigid winters, have had an impact on the courts. At minimum, they are no longer as smooth as one would want for a nice game of basketball. That will change this summer. The courts will be ripped out and replaced with new ones in a $442,000 project approved by the city council. As an added bonus, there will also be a drinking fountain installed near the courts. The project will start as soon as weather will permit and be completed by July 31. So the courts will be off limits during the first half of the summer. But after that, they will be ready for fast-moving, high-flying basketball action. This project is needed. Those basketball courts were going to pieces. But the project is also another welcome investment, turning the park in the Pleasant Valley neighborhood into an attractive place. The change really began in 2018 when the park was renamed. It used to be called Mini Park, a name that was so generic as to be meaningless. The Pleasant Valley Awareness Committee led the way in changing the name to H.C. Merriweather Park. Merriweather was a prominent black businessman who owned a restaurant in Pleasant Valley. Naming the park after him gave the park a local flavor that was missing. The new courts will give the park a hot new basketball venue that was also needed. Get ready, basketball fans. And that does it for today's reading of the February 21, 2024 Messenger. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. Thanks for listening.